As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 11th, 2019. I'm your host, Kara Santa Maria, and I want to give a shout out to those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download, and that's because I rely on support from listeners just like you. So if you want to pledge your support, you can go to patreon.com slash talk nerdy and learn more. This week, I want to thank Rob Shrek, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Phil T. Bear, the Zombie Drummer, David J. E. Smith, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. Thank you all so, so very much. Remember, like I said, you can pledge your support at patreon.com slash talk nerdy, but you can also just visit my website, carasantamaria.com to learn more about the show. And you can get some cool talk nerdy swag at, you guessed it, talknerdymerch.com. All right, that's enough of that. I'm really excited about this week's episode. I had the opportunity to sit down in studio, which I don't get to do all the time anymore. So it's always a, you know, a pleasure uh, whenever I get to sit down with somebody face to face, look them in the eyes while we have a conversation. And this week was a great one. I'm going to see if I can pronounce her name correctly, because it's not terribly easy for me. Okay, she is Dr. Burchin Bedrick Gerber. I hope that was okay. And she is an associate professor and director of graduate programs at the Astani Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering of the University of Southern California. That's in the Viterbi School of Engineering. She's also the founding director of the Innovation in Integrated Informatics Lab and the Center for Intelligent Environments, Technology and Society. So she does really cool research that is all about the built environment and machine 
intelligence and systems thinking. And she also has a couple other really fascinating side projects that blend her interest in low-tech solutions with her deep humanitarian interests as well. So we're going to get to those soon. Um, guys, I'm just really excited about this interview, and I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. So without any further ado, here she is, Dr. Burchin Bedrick Gerber. Well, Burchin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. So we are sitting here in studio. I'm actually really glad to be in studio because I don't get to do this as often anymore. And I feel like there's something special that comes out when we're sitting in the same room as opposed to connecting over the Internet. But we could do that because you are local here to Southern California. Yes, I am. All right. So let's talk about the work that you do. Of course, there's a helicopter right overhead like the second we start recording. Um, and it's You'll really pick that loud. Up. I don't know. I think we might be picking it up. Guys, you're just getting a traditional LA experience right now. Um, I want to talk about the work that you're doing at USC. So um, according to the first intel that I got, you study interactive and built environments. I don't even know if that means anything to me. Interactive and built environments. Isn't everything interactive and built? I guess not. Um, like like a forest, is it's interactive, but it's not built, is it? Correct. And if you think about the buildings that you are living in right now and the tradition of building, uh, they're quite static mm -hmm. in my definition. So like this one we're here is, a, is yeah. a beautiful one, but I mean, it's really not changing with me being here or with you being there here and, uh, and uh, according to our mood or according to how we feel at this moment and our needs and desires, right? I mean, the lighting is static and maybe manually you can change it. The temperature is probably preset. Yeah. So I am envisioning these buildings that are a lot more dynamic and that could be configured around and their users' needs and desires and preferences at the moment that they have those. And so, you know, we talk about, like you said, needs, desires, preferences. What makes an interactive building, even maybe a responsive building, go beyond something that's just like a gimmick into something that actually does affect you for the better? Mm -hmm. I think that would be a built environment that would really understand you mm. and uh, and not only respond to what you want at the moment, but also maybe adapt to you over time. And, uh, and maybe recently we started also looking at like, maybe change you or mm. changes with you. Right. So I, so you talked about interaction. For me, interaction is bi-directional, right? So, and I look into human building interaction and I look into how buildings can change their users and how users of buildings can also change the buildings. Hmm. So imagine, I mean, I don't know how better to explain, but maybe like imagine your best friend. So imagine having the building acting like your best friend and influencing you, right? And changing you and, and things change between you and your friend and, and it changes and you change and it's not static, right? Sometimes you feel sad, you feel happy. Sometimes you feel like you're on top of your thing. Sometimes you want to slack off. And so there's this interaction between this thing and you. 
So there are like small, steady, incremental changes that are already happening sort of at the consumer level. A lot of it is sort of Internet of Things type mm-hmm, changes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I have a Nest thermostat, for example, so that's meant to I adapt. I don't like my Nest. I hate my Nest. I it's hate like- my Nest. So <laughs> yesterday I was so cold and it's 20 degrees. I'm still in the Celsius. So I'm like... I put it to 23 and it goes back to 20. I'm like, I, I yell my husband like, David, make this 23. And he comes and makes it 23 and it goes back to 20. I'm like, I know. How smart are you? You're not. I mean, seriously, I'm telling you, it's 23. I'm freezing. <laughs> so I'm really annoyed with those kind of uh, things. And Alexa doesn't get my accent. So I'm also <laughs> offended. So as you can tell, uh, yes, I think we're moving towards that direction but we're really not there we're so not there and we think yeah people think that they are but sometimes some of these i guess maybe incremental changes when you're an early adopter although with nest i feel like a lot of people have nest now so we're not really early adopters but they can sometimes be more hassle than they're worth for me they are yeah nest for example same for me um exact same situation last night i have it pre-programmed I don't have it on eco mode. All of the things where it's just supposed to obey me. And then it's like, you want it to be colder, right? I'm like, no, it's freezing in here. So that happens a lot. And, you know, you have the app. It makes it a little bit easier. Some people I know love to have. It overrides you. Yes, it overrides. I can't stand that. Uh, Me neither. It thinks it knows what's best for me and it doesn't. Um, Some people have the the lights in their house. You know, I have um, LEDs all through the house, Mm -hmm. but I don't have like the color temperature Mm -hmm, ones. mm -hmm. And I don't have an app on my phone. I don't have smart lights. I just Mm -hmm. have LED lights Mm -hmm. right now. Um, But I've thought about like moving. I've I've tried it with a few different light bulbs, but I don't Mm -hmm. have a whole house system. But that's sort of a, you know, nighttime mood lighting Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. party mood lighting. Just hit the app or say it to your Alexa. I don't have an Alexa yet either. I guess I'm just not an early adopter. <laughs> but you you see that eventually the maybe the machine learning that's involved, yes. the artificial intelligence, yes. will be much smarter. Yes, that's what we use in my lab as well. Uh, so, but imagine so we're, we're talking about our frustrations, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those frustrations are related to the fact that these things, Internet of Things or machines, are really not understanding what we want. Mm-hmm. So my thermostat keeps going back to 20 degrees because it's at night but I came home at night right and it's thinking that oh it's past midnight we're conserving energy and she's sleeping so under the covers she's going to be okay but that's not the case I came home late I'm cold and I wanted hot yeah so um so those nuances really matter for me because we don't live on a pattern on a schedule and uh, sometimes we're sick we want it warmer sometimes we come home late we want it warmer or sometimes we feel like we want to be warmer, right? I mean, all those things have to be learned, in my opinion, and or detected and Mm. not discarded. So what I don't like in buildings that made me start this research is it's uh, we're treated as one size fits all. So it doesn't matter if it's Kara, Amy or Burchin, we just get whatever is assigned to us. Yeah. Uh, But this is not... I mean, we have personalities, we have different uh, needs. So this is what I'm trying to fulfill. So that's one part of it, the preferences, right? And this is all about basically collecting data from the environment as well as from the person. So that's actually the difficult part here because it's not just building data. It's also related to personal data. So Which we is look sometimes at, physiological, but often subjective. Exactly. Yeah. Physiological data and sometimes physiological data does not meet 
with or match with the psychological data, right? Yeah. And how do you basically fuse this subjective data with the objective data you're receiving, right? And uh, and we're talking about basically mind, right? Sometimes I am satisfied, but not comfortable. Sometimes I'm comfortable, but unsatisfied. So all those nuances matter to me. So anyway, so I'm sidetracking a little bit, but... Uh, our work really tries to fuse the subjective data with the objective data and also make sense out of that and build models using machine learning and similar techniques to basically learn what you want mm -hmm. at the time that you're in, but also you change, mm -hmm. right? For example, that thermal comfort is a very good example. Uh, the temperature outside changes right now we're in a period of time uh i lived in la for 12 years this is the coldest uh, winter yeah and and we acclimate to seasons right uh so that learning has to be continuous and needs to be updated um so we look into online learning and how we can basically keep the models uh current mm -hmm. and uh, so it's not like what i'm trying to say i guess is it's not like a one-time thing i learned you and this is it uh, we have to really understand the changes in persons uh preferences as well as changes in the environment as well so, I mean, when I think about this sort of from an academic perspective, I think that this is so multidisciplinary. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, and I, I am assuming that your work group has a lot of different people. But you personally, do you consider yourself an <sighs> engineer? Are you a physicist? Are you a data scientist? Are you a material scientist? Like, where does it all fit in? I mean, as you pointed out, I work with so many disciplines, uh, so many disciplines that it actually makes my mind revolve sometimes. But <laughs> I consider myself, uh, I think, a building scientist. A building uh, scientist. Yes. Um, so I have background in architectural engineering and civil engineering. But because of my interests, I mean, you know, education happens outside the classroom a lot. And mm -hmm. as professors, we learn. And that's why I chose to be a researcher, quite frankly, keep learning. And I find myself learning from my colleagues uh, and students, uh, peers uh, in social psychology. And now I work with an occupational therapist, for example. So that's a whole new world to me. I've worked quite a bit with computer scientists, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, architects. So it's depending on the needs of the project. And that's why I like what I do, I pull in the experts and that's there's this learning experience. Uh, and my students, uh, I mean, they come with traditional engineering background, but they have to take so many courses outside engineering that they yeah. get degrees in other disciplines. So you really need to have uh, the type of personality, right? Because sometimes this is uh, uncomfortable to get into a field that you're really not familiar with. Absolutely. I mean, so so you as a professor, as a researcher, are within the engineering department, Correct. right, at the University uh, of Southern I'm California. Specifically in civil engineering. In civil engineering. Yes. But you come from architecture. And like you said, you're even working with social psychologists, occupational therapists. You know, we talk a lot um, on this show. Yes, on Talk Nerdy, we've mentioned it, but definitely on the other show that I work on, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, we talk a lot about the Dunning-Kruger effect. We talk a lot about you know, cognitive biases that we fall victim to, concepts that we discuss called neuropsychological humility, like understanding mm -hmm. how fallible our brains are. And, you know, it's like you mentioned, it's not a comfortable feeling not being expert in the things you're working in actively. No. And when you're a multidisciplinary scientist, you have to kind of 
trust other people and be comfortable with the fact that maybe I didn't spend 15 years studying that aspect of my work. So I'm kind of not good at this part of it, but I'm really open to learning. I mean, this is what's fascinating. Yeah. Quite honestly, this is what keeps me going. I mean, you have to trust and you have to be okay with being uncomfortable. But also, I mean, simple things. We don't also speak uh, the same language most of the time. I give this example a lot. We were in the meeting. We were talking about modeling. Mm -hmm. And we spent an hour talking about modeling. And then all of a sudden, one of us, I raised hands and said, well, what do you mean by modeling? And one of us was talking about geometric modeling. The other one was talking about mathematical modeling. So we were basically talking about modeling, but from completely different perspectives, missing each other. And trying to make sense out of the conversation, I think. So it goes even beyond that. So you have to start from the basics and define words. And and also in different fields, we don't agree with the approaches mm -hmm. sometimes, right? So we have different approaches and it's really difficult to bring together engineering approaches sometimes with social science approaches. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I think this is fascinating. I, I love learning. And sometimes I understand things well after a certain point of uh, certain time, uh, spending certain time in, in something, but you don't have the right vocabulary because you're not formally educated. But I, I believe the topics of the future or, or today are topics that are not easy for one discipline to yeah. tackle. So, I mean, this is going to be the norm and it's becoming the norm. So, and that's how I like working. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's very difficult nowadays to remain siloed in your academic discipline because it's rare anymore that people are doing this kind of quote-unquote pure science. Like maybe if you're a theoretical cosmologist, but even still, the fields are becoming so specific mm -hmm. that if you're a gravitational wave scientist, for example, you still need to understand basic cosmology and you still, you know, like, and I'm working here in social science and it's funny you're talking about modeling and I'm thinking of behavior modeling mm -hmm. and then you're talking about trying to have the same vocabulary. And I'm realizing over and over and over working on my psychology degree now, being back in school after being gone for so long, how important the idea of constructs is that most of the things we talk about in life don't exist without our own constructed idea mm -hmm. of what they are. So we have to come up with the term for it, define the word, talk about what parameters, the, you know, have an operational definition mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm. word, talk about what that thing is not. And almost all of those things are not things until we label them as things. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other area. Yes. <laughs> it's a whole another challenge you yeah. have to overcome. But then once you overcome that, you have to also find all intersecting interests, right? Because sometimes as a social scientist, your inter interest might not be aligned with my interests. So mm -hmm. finding those people that are right for your interest is another challenge. But uh, once you find your people, it becomes really rewarding, in my opinion. It's so cool. I mean, I recently had a guest on the show who is a researcher at the University of Texas, and she's a chemist, an analytical mm -hmm. chemist, but she works in biomedical material science, and she developed a, a mass spec 
pen. So it's like a pen that's connected to a mass spec where if a researcher, or I'm sorry, a surgeon is doing cancer, like excising a tumor, they can test the boundaries of the tumor in situ, like within mm-hmm. the person in vivo and figure out whether or not um, there's still cancer there to excise mm-hmm. it, like these molecular markers at this quick level. And it's so cool to see she would not have been able to do that as a chemist yeah. if she didn't really care about cancer biology and didn't know who to trust and who to work with. And so obviously something as complicated as your lived environment. Yeah, I mean, you have to have that. <laughs> you have there, to have so many people involved. Yes. So I'd love to get into that because, you know, we talked a little bit about mood, about something like temperature and, you know, regulating thermostats. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what are the words that we, stochastic kind of systems, are old school principles that are, we're getting to be more and more expert at. Mm-hmm. But I would love to know maybe like, what are some of the projects you're working on right now sure. in your lab that give us more of a tangible idea of what our future environments are going to look like? Sure. Um, I mean, I can give you examples and I love giving examples because I think that really connects people with uh, the things that I'm talking about. Um, there are a few projects that I'm really excited about. One of them is about this intelligent workstation. Okay. So it is uh, a desk and a chair. So similar to the stuff that you can find in any office building. Mm-hmm. But it has uh, these sensors on the desk. So humidity sensors and uh, temperature sensors, light sensors and carbon dioxide sensors, the distance sensors, all that kind of stuff. So this desk, it also has the standing feature and sitting feature like uh, any popular uh new desks that mm-hmm. you have. But this desk, uh, what is interesting about this is uh, it continuously senses you, what you're doing, as well as your environment. One thing that we have realized with the centralized uh, uh, HVAC systems is uh, it's really hard to make people satisfied. Like we were talking about thermal comfort. Just take that. Okay? Yeah. Because we have so much diversity in people in terms of their preferences, and because these systems are designed in such a way that if you have more than three people in one zone, it's really hard to make everybody happy. You're right? so right. It's always either, and I don't want to be gendered with this, but I do think that there oh, is no. evidence that supports called. this. <laughs> but yeah, it's either the lady in the office who's always freezing or the yes. dude in the office who's always boiling. Uh, and somehow everybody else has to like adapt uh, to their yes. temperature. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking yes. about. And I'm the lady who's always called, right? Um, so. So, so we have realized the centralized systems and the designs we have in these buildings, mm-hmm. which are extremely expensive and complicated, yeah. are not really fulfilling people's needs. Um, so we, we said, I'm coming back to the desk. What if it's instead of a centralized system with, with the duct system and diffusers and ventilators and all that kind of stuff? What if we provide thermal and local, local comfort? At the sure. desk. Okay. Now you can relax everything else. And then if I have heating and cooling and lighting at my desk, then it's, it's for me, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what uh, we're looking at. So all those sensors and it has the ergonomics part as well. That's where we're getting the collaboration going with the occupational therapists. 
so the, the desk basically senses you and your environment and learns what you prefer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then basically responds to your preferences and adapts to your press preferences. But there is one nuance. I mean, uh, this is quite advanced compared to the, your regular desk already, right? So yeah. we're talking about a desk that knows my temperature, that knows my lighting. But people don't always choose the right things. So that's the other thing when we talk about interaction. It's not always fulfilling a person's needs, desires, preferences, right? Sometimes we choose the wrong things mm-hmm. for our health or well-being. So, for example, Americans have a very narrow thermal comfort range, right? Because <laughs> we're so used to air conditioning. I think so. Yeah. Uh, because... Uh, Yes, I mean, you're always in these conditioned spaces. So, of course, you like from 70 to 73 Fahrenheit. And if it's 75, God forbid, you're uncomfortable. Yeah, right? and it better be 45% humidity only. Yes. <laughs> and it's not, turns out to be, it's not very good for you to be that strict and mm-hmm. so narrow, right? The wider your band is, the more you're exercising your thermal neutrality and your metabolism uh, work, your systems work better. So... Take the desk, right? So how does this desk take you uh, from what you want or what you're used to to what is best yeah, or better you for need. you, right? Mm. Now we're getting into machine-human negotiation, right? And even communication. And take this example for other things, right? I mean, it could be the lighting. And lighting is very interesting because it depends on what tasks you're undertaken at the moment mm-hmm. and what kind of natural lighting you have. Uh, of course, your preferences, but uh, I mean, lighting could be very stressful. You can have fatigue, you can have other kind of issues. So maybe you're not working in a suboptimal optimal, uh, environment. It could be also for your posture. So that's the other interesting thing that I we have added recently because mm. I sit a lot yeah. at my desk, quite frankly. And the uh, and I had this neck ache and shoulder ache. And and my colleague told me because of the arrangement that I have around the desk as well as my chair height and the desk height. Anyway, so coming back to the desk. So what if, if this desk notices that you're not in the best position or in the right best conditions? So how should it communicate with you? Yeah, should it and be change a your disciplinary? Exactly. Should it, should it like ask your permission, or should it just do it? Should it just do it? Or then are we just going to keep <laughs> keep turning the thermostat back up? So, I mean, we're working on the, that negotiation mm. as well, right? Um, so, it's not again one size fits all. It depends on the personalities, and it depends on the moment as well, and the conditions, and the context, and the situation. Uh, we're looking at matching off that communication um, or action with the personalities and uh, and the situation, right? So it could be some people just like want to choose something on a touch screen and then it happens. Some people are okay with environmental conditions like air quality, humidity, temperature, lighting, but they don't want to be touched uh, when it comes to their chair and position. So it's... What I try to do with my research is I really try to honor where people are and what people want to do and try to match these things, machines, or I mean, in this case, the desk is a machine for me uh, with people and uh, try to convince them to get there. Right. I mean, this is also very difficult in the sense that one time change is not enough. We're talking about 
change over time. Yeah, and it's iterating all the time. Yes. It's kind of reflexive, like you said, too, because the changes that it's making for our comfort, we're then teaching the machine and the machine itself is changing. So there's this reflexive exactly. nature to it that's complicated. So it's complicated because uh, there is the mind of the machine and the mind of the person. And then there's the motor functions of the person and the motor functions of the machine. So they are in a way working together in a very conventional environment, office, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like the one that we're in. Um, and then the, there's this constant negotiation because if something changes in the desk, your position changes or in the environment, your feelings change and the machine or the desk, uh, the workstation has to adapt to that. Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean by interaction at the very beginning that we were talking about what is interaction. So I'm really interested in framing this interaction in the best way uh, that uh, that is possible so that there is user acceptance and and satisfaction. Because what's important to me is not like, oh, you're liking it once. I want you to be in that moment of working with the machine or the desk in this case. And it changes you and you change it. Yeah, it really is an ongoing relationship. And it's so funny, like you talked about negotiating this idea between what is comfortable and what is healthful. Mm -hmm. For example, I want to be as slumped as possible because I'm comfortable, but then later I'm mad at myself yes. for the fact that my legs fell asleep. Or, you know, I notice that there are these small changes that are occurring. Um, and I don't even think at this level it's machine learning, but it's these, like Netflix, for example, if you're binge watching, mm -hmm. eventually it's going to ask you, are you still watching? Mm-hmm. Or do you, do you want to continue? Like, it's not just going to keep autoplaying because it's like, hmm, hey, dude, you've been sitting here for six hours straight. Maybe this isn't healthy. Exactly. And I could definitely see this desk environment being like, okay, you've been sitting down for 45 minutes. Yes. You have to walk away for five minutes. Otherwise, your productivity yeah. is going to, you know, go down. Your legs are going to start to hurt. Like, it, you might not want to right now, but you're going to thank me for it later. Absolutely. But I could also see so many people being like, Click override, click override. Well, that, that's the beauty of it, yeah. right? I mean, it's not just standing or sitting. We're also looking at neck, neck, shoulders, mm -hmm. arms, like positions, uh, because uh, some things build up. I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have this like uh, issues with your back and things like that. Um, but what was I going to say? Sorry, I thought the train of my, my thoughts. But um Overriding is part of the process, yeah. right? So this is what I was trying to tell you with the nest. If I'm overriding the, the, the machine or the thing or the environment has to look around to see why I am overriding, right? Maybe even look at my calendar and I'm working on a proposal, right? I mean, I have a deadline of 5 p.m. So I cannot be bothered that day. Yeah. Tomorrow I'm going to be okay because I will be okay submitting my proposal and I'm not stressed out anymore. So understanding these changes or, or nuances is very difficult for machines in a way. Um, it's very difficult for humans. Correct, as well. Yeah. And, 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 and you said it very well. Sometimes we ask people why they have done something and they don't, they can't even express mm -hmm. why. Uh, so you have to ask the question in different ways and many times to get to the bottom of like why you have overwritten or why you have chosen X versus Y. So it, it is difficult. As you can imagine, machines uh, will also have difficulty to learn this uh, if we don't know ourselves or if we're not very 
clear with ourselves. For sure. I'm even seeing, you know, I'm, I'm working in um, a clinical setting, seeing patients on a regular basis. And, and I work in a residential facility, which means that although therapy is not mandated mm -hmm. legally, mm -hmm. um, it is highly indicated, but there is very little buy-in for the residents to actually attend therapy. They're not interested in it. They mm -hmm. want to refuse therapy on a regular basis. And so there's these little things that you learn, and I'm even almost sometimes kind of doing my own internal experiments. Like if I say, hey, do you want to do therapy today or no? Versus Hey, it's time for therapy. Of course. I'm yes. going to get a totally different response. Yes. We did that actually. It's funny that you mentioned mm -hmm. this because, um, we, I mean, in one of these projects, um, continuing along those lines, we represented the building as, um, an avatar. Mm -hmm. Okay. Actually, we tested this like, what if, if the building has to talk to you, right? I mean, it's not always going to be, Oh, you want this, you want that, take it. Sometimes we can't do things because we also live in a multi-occupancy setting. Sometimes maybe what you want is against what I want or yeah. it's against the energy requirements or, or your health. So in many cases, the building has to has a, have to have a voice to talk to you. So we tested that. We tested it in uh, different messaging strategies. So what if, if I ask you to do something directly versus what if, if I ask you in different ways of phrasing it? And uh, sure enough, like the example that you have given, there are ways to ask um, request mm -hmm. to get more compliance. And then we tested uh, the building. Uh, this, this started me thinking. I'm like, okay, how should the building look like? What, what is it? Uh, like, is it, is it text better? Is it voice better? Is it an avatar better? Emoji. Exactly. <laughs> and we tested all of those. And again, uh, people really complied a lot more with buildings request if it was a female avatar <laughs> versus a female voice, Love right? It. Versus a male avatar. Mm -hmm. And then we personified uh, these, uh, these avatars. So once we figure out it's the female, then we said, um, what if we say that it's coming from the building manager versus building, yeah. right? So people really didn't like the building talking to you and they complied more when it's building manager until the female avatar started having a small talk with you. <laughs> okay, so when the building, the female avatar started like, talking to you as, as a building and saying that, oh, how are you? And how are you feeling today? And you know what? I'm hot too. And would you do this? <laughs> and it immediately switched. People started complying with the female avatar thinking that is a building. So, how I mean, I, I'm giving this example because you gave an excellent uh, <laughs> example of like how to ask things in different ways, right? It's not just the messaging, but also how... The appearance, right? And, uh, and, and, and the small talk and everything else. So we build these relationships yeah. with, uh, these things. And one thing that I was really interested in is like, okay, I ask one and I got compliance. What if you feel like this thing keeps approaching me and asking me favors? Yeah. Like at what point do yeah, I? Yeah. I know. Like, do the compliance go up or down? It went up, interestingly. And we did this in virtual reality, and then we did this in the physical world, and it, there was a great match between uh, uh, the two uh, me, uh, uh, 
to environment. So it's very interesting where all of this can go, it's right? so um, funny. And I can't like, from a psych perspective, like a neuropsych perspective, I know it sounds cliche, but I can't help but just go back to the fact that this all comes to attachment with your mother. <laughs> Like all comes Honestly, back to this idea. I was asking. Yeah. I was asking. I'm like, why female? Because we we predicted this, right? Because uh, your GPS has a female voice. Mm-hmm. Alexa has a female voice. Siri has a female voice. So I expected the female would gain more compliance, but we didn't know in the building context if it's going to work or not. And they they said exactly the same thing because you hear your mother's voice in the wound, mm-hmm. like even before you're born, you're programmed to listen to a female voice more than a male voice. And there's also, you know, there's so much social cueing around development with mothers and fathers. Um, it's not the case as much as it used to be. The social norms are definitely changing, changing in a major way. Sure. But historically, you know, mothers were the empathic caretakers and they were the patient caretakers mm-hmm. and they were, yes, they had to be disciplinarians just like fathers but they weren't as i guess um unidimensional in their disciplinary but you know you're saying this I'm, I'm thinking about something completely new because mm-hmm. i can't stand any of these things because i test things on me first love it yeah. i love the male <laughs> voice Yep. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. And I read a lot of papers and I make my Mac read to me. I have Alex there. Mm-hmm. So it's always male voice for me. But I never thought about that. I love both of my parents. <laughs> but my father was so involved in yeah. uh, us when we were growing up. And I'm super attached to him. I'm like now thinking like, isn't it funny? Is that too? what you say? <laughs> well, and isn't it funny? Because we can make assumptions. This is where big data gets complicated, right? Because we can make assumptions about the majority of people yes. based on cultural patterns, based on these things. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the individual user. And that individual user has their own history that in some ways completely corresponds with what we think of as neurotypical. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, is totally divergent. Yes, You know, we have the clients that I see all have very difficult um, parental and attachment pasts. And so all the generic normative stuff that we think of when it comes to healthy attachment, it's out the window with them. And yeah. we have to get really creative. Um, but it's it's so funny. I, I never wanted to think this back when I was like a, a pure neuroscientist that we really are so beholden to the stuff that happened from zero to five. But that that's everything. That was that was when our architecture, our brain oh, architecture is being raised. I know I little it, kids. <laughs> I know it's so stressful for parents too to think about. Like, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> Constantly. But the great thing is we're also really resilient. That's true. <laughs> so that's good to remember too. And the the types of parents who are constantly thinking about what they're doing wrong are probably the best parents yes, out there. I it's, hope so. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's so true. But isn't it funny how a lot of it comes down to these places and. And, and I love this idea. It also, it makes me very happy as somebody who's decided to go back to my social science roots, who was in the more, I guess, conventional, practical, applied sciences for quite a long time mm-hmm. in neuroscience and doing like, you know, legit lab rat. Actually, I worked with mice, um, sprog dolly mice, but m- mouse research day to day. You know, I always talked about being elbow deep in mouse guts every day in the lab. Yeah, okay. I know. <laughs> and now I'm seeing people again. And there is this um, 
what do you call it? There's this kind of stigma within academia that the social sciences are like the squishy sciences and they're not real science. And, and, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about and they don't really understand how to utilize the scientific method or they don't understand how to, how to work with statistics, even though they get better statistical training. That's not my experience. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I learned from my social science uh, colleagues. I love that. It's I mean, a, quite it, honestly, I mean, this uh, it's never been my experience. And it's really cool to see two fields that we think of as being some of the farthest apart, engineering and social science, mm-hmm. computer science and social science, and farthest apart from all sorts of perspectives, farthest apart from the type of training you get, farthest apart from the diversity makeup within those departments. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's really cool to see a female professor, a first generation female professor of engineering sitting across from me because this is a field where we know that the gender equity is is among some of the lowest, right? And not at USC per se, but across the board, right? I mean, I'm very used to walking into rooms with just all male colleagues mm-hmm. or peers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and especially at the civil high- engineering. Yes. <laughs> so we've got applied engineering, yeah. right? We've also got the academic side of it. We've got mm-hmm. computer science, which is just as difficult. And at the highest levels is where you see the worst parity, right? Mm-hmm. So the more we're getting into the tenured positions, the leadership the positions leadership. in academia, I mean, mm-hmm. I can talk about that. I mean, we're getting so, we're getting better. Yeah. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank some new sponsors of the episode this week, starting with Mova. Have you heard of Mova? You've probably seen them before, maybe in your friends' houses, maybe in gift shops, but they're these really fascinating, fabulous rotating globes that are actually powered by light. They're the first of its kind technology, and it's just ambient light. They don't need to be in direct sunset, but they have these hidden magnets inside, which actually provide movement. Now, I've had one for quite some time. I got it through some of my work with National Geographic, and it's a Mars globe, and I just absolutely love it. It's beautiful because it's taken from real NASA data and JPL data. So the surface, the kind of topography of Mars is just stunning and rich and really high resolution. And I actually had some friends over, some like legitimate scientist friends. One of them was an astrophysicist. And we were looking at this thing and we're like, how the hell does this work? There's no batteries. You don't plug it in. It's liquid on the inside. How is it moving on its own? Um, Come to find out later. Yep. Powered by light. And they're just beautiful, you guys. There's so many different options, too, like Mars globes, Jupiter globes, Earth globes, lots of different kinds of Earth globes, even a moon globe. I know you're going to love them. I know you're going to love them just as much as I love my MOVA globe. So try it out, you guys. Go to www.movaglobes.com slash nerdy and use the coupon code nerdy for 10% off your purchase. Again, that's movaglobes.com slash nerdy, M-O-V-A-G-L-O-B-E-S.com slash nerdy and use the coupon code nerdy for 10% off. 
I also want to thank Sora for their support of Talk Nerdy this week. And I feel like I didn't plan this, I promise, but I totally could have. At least I didn't do it on purpose. This is such a great partnership for this specific episode. So Sora are these beautiful LEDs, you know, lights, and they're uniquely designed with full spectrum technology so that you can see every color just like you see when you're outside, right? The same vibrant light that you find in stunning places like museums, you can now have in your own home. But what I really want to talk about this week is Sora Healthy. It's the only LED designed with zero blue light. It helps you get back to your natural sleep cycle. You guys have heard about the effects of blue light, right? Like we know about the light cycle when we sleep, about how, you know, light hits the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain. And then there are pathways that go beyond that that ultimately lead to melatonin increase or melatonin suppression. Blue light suppression is melatonin, which is no bueno. That's why you'll often see red lights in bathroom spaces, in hotel rooms, in places, or at least you should see a red light when you want to get up in the middle of the night because it's not going to wake you up the way that blue light does. So this is what I love about Sora Healthy. I'm actually using them now and I'm noticing a big change. Use them in the hours leading up to bedtime to minimize that blue light in your house. They're dimmable. They don't buzz. Um, they're energy efficient, of course. They're LEDs, so they use a fraction of energy of incandescence. They last 10 times as long. Um, but what I love, too, is that you can control them all very easily via the website. It's it's just the best. And you guys, think about what we're talking about this week on the show, right? We're talking about these smart spaces. And how much smarter to make your home than to have the lighting design really um you know, working for you in a way that promotes your well-being, that promotes your health. So I don't know what you're waiting for, probably because I haven't told you how to get your hands on these things, but you've got to go to amazon.com slash Sora and enter the promo code nerdy light. That's the important thing. And you'll get 15% off any purchase over $50. Again, that's amazon.com slash Sora, S-O-R-A-A, and enter the promo code nerdy light at checkout. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. And I have to say, this is, uh, I mean, maybe we're diverging a little bit, but it's kind of a little bit of an American problem, I think, engineering, female engineers, I think, because where I'm Turkish, Mm -hmm. uh, where I'm coming from, and in Middle East, being an engineer is a very prestigious thing. So parents encourage their daughters and sons to be not just engineers, but I mean, it's something to be aspired for. I only have boys, but I am realizing that uh, maybe this is a little outside our topic, but I mean, females are being a little discouraged uh, mm-hmm. in the first few years of their education Absolutely. to focus on something math oriented, maybe. I think you're right. I think in America and in other, maybe other Western nations, you do see a lot of discouragement as soon as there is the literature tends to show that this is happening right around puberty mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, you're, you are seeing a lot of it happening earlier, but there's less, I think, discrimination as genders are less discriminated, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the more um, around the puberty ages, so like uh, early adolescence, preteen ages, is when you start to see subconscious, unconscious changes in how we talk to boys versus girls. Mm-hmm. 
And then, as you know, you know, we call it the leaky pipeline. It just gets worse and worse and worse the later on you get in your academic training and the higher you get in terms of your leadership. I mean, retention is a problem as you go higher and Mm -hmm. higher. But I mean, we're all working on it. So there's there's going to be a change, I believe. Well, and change Uh, just doesn't exist until we have people like yourself, people who are models and really working hard on recruiting more females into the field. So Mm -hmm. in those leadership positions, like you said, who are mentoring, who are showing other people that they have the opportunity. And I mean, when it comes down to it, right, because sometimes I get the the sort of sexist response to these questions, which is like, well, what if men are just better at X and women are better at Y, which we've disproven a million times. But regardless. Or they say, well, it's just a choice. Women don't want to blah, 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 which of course we've disproven a million times. But even (laughs) beyond that, when we talk about the why, well, why does it matter to have gender parity? Okay, let's take all of our political viewpoints and put them on the shelf. Let's take our activism, our, you know, feminist viewpoints and put them on the shelf. And let's just talk about outcomes. Mm -hmm. You're sitting here talking about environments that are responsive to people's needs. And what happens if the only people that are designing those environments are white men? You think maybe only the needs of white men are probably going to be the ones that are satisfied there? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't we need to have a diversity well, of opinions? Definitely. This is this is what I'm I'm trying to achieve, right? I mean, it's not just between the gender, two genders, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's all kinds of stuff. Your cultural background, your educational background, Anything. So mm-hmm. your genetic makeup. I mean, I'm really interested in not serving one type of population, but and and I I really don't want to do this is the answer because I think there will be many different answers yeah. in this context that we're operating. Right? And we're talking about we're talking about homes. We're talking about schools. We're talking about uh, offices. How many people there? Think about it. And so it it has to be a. A lot more complex than this is the answer. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm trying to get to with the buildings because so far we have these standardized uh, rules or codes that we try to comply to. And the way that we're designing buildings and operating buildings are not giving us any room to basically implement what I'm envisioning, right? So how do we basically rethink about the design and maybe that's why i was telling you maybe it's the desk maybe it's not like the whole building we have to change maybe we change a unit um so we have to really think outside the box and for me look at the years and years of building design it's not changed all that much so it's time to and everything else is changing right i mean and your communication systems are changing and 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 we have now computer i mean all kinds of stuff that is infiltrating into our lives so it's i think time to change also how we live and where we live and and what they these these entities look like yeah i mean we know who the end user is but for so long we have assumed that the end user is all the same person Right. And usually that person is whoever was the dominant person in any sort of control or power. So historically, whoever was the one making these designs mm-hmm. was probably just thinking about themselves because that's human nature. There's nothing wrong yes. with that. But when we have more people involved making those decisions from, as you said, 
a plethora of backgrounds, then all of a sudden we're going to have more ideas in the room. Absolutely. And one thing that I am noticing and I'm surprised is mm-hmm. those, you're absolutely right because they're decision makers, architects, engineers making these decisions based on what they observe or what they know, maybe themselves or a couple other people. I mean, I don't want to take the whole knowledge base away from a discipline. There are very little empirical studies also to this hmm. date, right? So we, I mean, post-occupancy studies are rare and very wow. limited in numbers and locations and climates and all that kind of stuff. So it's not, there, there wasn't up to this date uh, or recently that there's that kind of data collected or used by these building designers and engineers to say like, okay, people want this because this is kind of an unknown territory, right? Now we're collecting all kinds of data from people and the environment. We have sensors and the sensing systems and the abilities to basically crunch data. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a lot more that we know. I think, I, I think the building sector is at the verge of like really making a change because of the data we have. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting that, You know, we're finally getting to the point. I think we've been collecting big data for a long time, but we're finally getting to a point where we can actually use it. (laughs) We know what to do with it. And even still, there's so much data. And as you know, I mean, you're a scientist as well. You have to really collect. It's not like just collect data and make sense out of it. You have to collect the right data, the right granularity, the right type of data, right frequency. I mean, you have to think what you're collecting, it's not like a data. I mean, if of course with big data, you can also sort the data and make sense out of it. But but you can also get yourself in, in a lot of trouble that way if you're only doing things post hoc, right? Yeah, so you've got to ask questions in advance. Yes, I That's mean we good science. We design our sensors. We design our experiments. We we do interventions right in buildings so that we can collect the data with, that we need mm-hmm. to get to where we want to go. Yeah. What a fascinating area of research, first of all. What a cool way to, like, basically, you're never going to run out of work to do, which is really cool. This is, you know, what I'm (laughs) thinking is uh, I really landed myself in an area that I'm really pleased about. And I changed my entire focus. You know, I. What were you studying before? Uh, I did my PhD in a very uh, traditional project management online collaboration. So in a project setting, like how to better communicate with different stakeholders, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. buildings are multidisciplinary. Uh, I wasn't focusing on the, on the users necessarily, but you have mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, architects, and all kinds of designers and how to facilitate this communication and project managed. So this is what I was focusing on. But then I am like, okay, you know what, there's a lot more here. And I need to find something that is going to combine all of my interests and bring humans at the center of Mm -hmm. the decision making. So that's how I shifted. But I'm so happy now because uh, it's a very diverse area of research, right? It depends on from which angle you want to look at the problem. I mean, I'll give you another example. We're looking at now human building interactions from the point of view of active shooter incidents in buildings. Oh, wow. It's completely different than what we've been talking about, right? We're talking about comfort satisfaction. But now we're interested in, like, specifically in schools and offices, uh, we have these unfortunate events, right? Um, but we have also other kinds of emergencies like building fires, earthquakes, and terrorism. Yeah, and we often only think about how does the building work when everything's working well? Exactly. But not we, how does the building become a trap? 
Correct. Yeah. This is exactly what we're looking at. So there are many recommendations now to prevent terrorism or yeah. to, to prevent active shooter incidents. And they are, they are basically recommendations by experts, but I want to test those recommendations in action. Okay. So what if, if we have narrower corridors or we have inward opening doors or, or, or different features we bring to the buildings, right? Securities and barriers and landscaping and all that kind of stuff. How do these things work? Oh, right? It's so uh, how, do they work the way that we intend to work? Yeah. Or do they work completely opposite or, and how do these things change human behavior during that event, right? And then also, how do they interplay if it's, if it's a fire emergency versus an active shooter incident, mm-hmm. right? So again, it's going back to, like, I, I don't think buildings should be static. So I don't think, because we have so much variability in buildings in terms of what's happening and what's, when it's happening. And we're to- we were talking about regular working Mm -hmm. buildings right now we're talking about emergencies so this is something i'm really excited about because we're we're basically collecting all of these recommendations from security experts and designers and security engineers and we want to test a regularly designed building versus like enhanced security measures building and have a simulator simulated active shooter incident and see which one is going to yield better results in terms of safety and security of people. So that's something that's, I mean, coming back to like endless area of research questions, right? I mean, this is very contemporary. I wasn't thinking about this five years ago. Well, and it reminds me too of how much even like our environment around us is such a product of the zeitgeist. Like I think about walking around New York City and seeing fallout shelters still in a lot of the buildings because they were reflective mm-hmm. of the time, exactly. right? And and thinking that this is now a new normal for us um, is fascinating. I mean, there's a little bit of a dystopian, obviously, vibe to it, but it's really fascinating that any anthropologist who comes back in tens of thousands of years and sees these vestiges Mm -hmm. can understand what our social um, uh, or geopolitical Mm -hmm. settings were at the time. And of course, I think that that's a really good segue because we're running low on time into some of the interesting things that you're doing that I, I guess to some people might feel like they're completely out of out of step with your work, but I'm sure that they're they're actually inextricably you know implicated there. Is that you are working um, and actively passionately working on the refugee crisis right now, and you're involved in your standing here at USC and utilizing some of those tools. Mm-hmm. How are you working with refugee students, and how are you working with students? to kind of open their eyes up and maybe affect change mm-hmm. with this, I mean, obviously global mm-hmm. crisis that we're dealing with that's, in, in my view, only going to get worse with climate change. Yes, yeah. unfortunately. I mean, I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a problem that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's here to stay. So it's an interesting, it, it is connected. It doesn't sound correct. Connected, right, I know. Right? Yeah. Out, it's like, okay, well, this is like your side yeah. project, but no. <laughs> it is connected from the point of view of, I always like experimenting and doing new things with my teaching as well, not mm-hmm. just research, but also it's really related that this is a course that we have designed really related to my research because it it is user-centered design and engineering and innovation. So, so far, everything we've talked 
about comfort and home and then the smart things are for a very privileged yeah. set of people like ourselves, right? Yeah, people we who have, can afford it. We and... have homes, we have means to exactly like you said, purchase these things and play around, right? So I started thinking, what if we are displaced? What if you don't have a home? What if you don't have anything but Think about what you're wearing right yeah. now. So this is all you have, okay? And you're crossing bo uh, borders and for days, and then you're arriving to a location. All you have is, again, what you are wearing, uh, plus what's given to you once a month, and living in a tent in, you know, the conditions. So we said engineering can really do something about this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an engineering course, but it's a very multidisciplinary course. So you can see some of my interests coming in. We have actually seven different schools represented in this class. We have the design side of things, many different engineers, business school, uh, Edinburgh Communications and Cinema School. So students come together and work in teams to innovate using design thinking and innovation and engineering solutions that would work for the crisis and mm -hmm. for, to be used again with by the people and these are i don't want to say low tech but definitely low cost solutions sure accessible accessible you know, i mean it has to be because yeah. it's, it, i can't uh, for example one of the one of the teams are working on warmth because it's a big problem and a jacket and there is they're working on air insulated jacket uh, that would keep refugees warm but it can't be a $400 jacket obviously no. right so yeah we know we... if we had the political will and the capital we could throw money at every problem and yeah. it would probably go away but we don't live in that world yeah so uh, but there there are different projects right we've realized warmth is a problem also hygiene is a big problem mm -hmm. uh, so there's one team working on a pop-up shower uh, because people don't have access to showers, people don't have access to hot water. Another team is working on a backpack water carrying system, and then there are different apps matching like people who want to give, like myself, to the refugees, but mm -hmm. through a storytelling. Anyway, there are different projects. What's interesting about this uh, project is we've been to a refugee camp, actually, two, uh, twice Where? And, uh, in Lesbos, Greece. Mm -hmm. Um, in September and in February, which uh, I came back very recently. <laughs> very uh, recently. Very recently yeah. to do user testing. Uh, testing these products. First was more user research. Again, users coming in mm -hmm. uh, to the picture to understand the context and to understand what is needed. Not just like design on our, like sitting on our comfortable chairs from LA, but really understanding the context. And the second trip was basically taking our prototypes. We build jackets, we build showers, we built uh, water carrying systems and testing with the refugees in the context that they're going to be used. And now we're in the process of reiterating all of that. And, and so were these, are these refugees mostly from Syria or are they from all over? And were they living in a camp? over. I mean, it's so incredible. Mm -hmm. So the, it's, uh, you would imagine, and I imagine also mm -hmm. Syrian in this particular camp, they were 70% from Afghanistan mm -hmm. and there were lots of Africans. There were Syrians. So... Uh, that particular island is kind of an entryway uh, to Europe. So you would see displaced people all around. 
and uh, and they are living in camps basically uh and there are different camps right on this island there it's not one again very different conditions even within a yeah. small island and of course different people with different cultural backgrounds different languages that they speak so oh. you were having to be able to bring to them products innovations that you couldn't you know give them an instruction book they just needed to know how to use them in some cases they we're asking them to build them mm-hmm. uh, as well the shower case for example yeah. yes i mean there's so many languages spoken in these uh, camps and so many different cultural backgrounds you can imagine again i mean it does it's not like one size fits all <clears throat> because yeah. uh, depending on your cultural background age and gender and and all, all that kind of important stuff that makes us us uh, they're different uh, desires, right? They're different needs. Yeah. But we're, again, talking about not like, we're talking about basics. We're talking about keeping people clean, yeah. people keep people warm, uh, access to uh, water. Yeah, uh, so things that keep them alive and then beyond that maybe contribute a little bit to dignity. Dignity is yeah. a very important uh, yeah. word uh, that we've been using mm-hmm. um, in this class. Empathy, dignity. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I mean, we maybe we can get by without taking a shower on a regular basis, but it's probably not going to be that psychologically healthy for us. Whether or not it is, these hygiene questions actually have medical implications, which they often do, even if they don't, they have huge psychological sure, implications. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even the things like, uh, imagine every morning you get up and you're dressing, you have whatever you have mm-hmm. on you, you chose that, yeah. right? Imagine not having that choice. You, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a very difficult uh, situation to You're live putting in. on the and, same and it's dirty not clothes one week. every day. Yeah, it's not one month. So it's a it's a living in the situation for a very long time and not even having the choice of choosing what you're going to wear. I mean, it's simple. Yeah. But if that's taken away from you, it many it, it, its impact is. Uh, and it's Huge. uncertain. You know, it's not just one month, like you said, it's not just one week. It's you don't know how long it's going to be. And you don't know if the place you're trying to get to is, is better, going to, is, better yes. is going to accept you, is going to turn you away. Yes. You know, and that's something that's really frustrating. Obviously, this could turn into a big um, political conversation about the yes. American borders and about the things yes. that we've been seeing, the uh, just frustrating, embarrassing atrocious behavior that our own government um, has offered to the world. Um, It's incredible to see, though, that even within these walls where I know that the reception of the American mentality is not good in places that are more progressive and in places that are more open, um, it is always good to see that there are people like yourself who do live in America who are not a part of that machine. You know what I mean? Who are choosing... To, to, go, to go beyond what the restrictions here are and say, well, then fine, I'll just go straight to Greece. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? And we're trying to really <laughs> stay away from the political, mm-hmm. because this is not something I can address. It's, it's, I'm in engineering, so yeah. I don't have the tools to address that. Uh, so we're really focusing on what we can do from the engineering perspective. Yeah, we want to solve some problems. <laughs> we're going to solve them however we can, right? Anyone, the solutions do. are small, right? I mean, and, and the expectation is these, these, these products are going to turn into companies, right? I mean, uh, there is the innovation part and uh, we're developing on the side or in parallel business models and, and we're, we're basically raising funds for these, uh, companies, right? Newborn companies. 
But imagine every school doing this. Yeah. Imagine every one of us doing this. So I think the collective power among us is uh, enormous if you can put that power in uh, action. Well, and what are we doing in academia if we're not making decisions and doing projects for the social good? Like, what is the point? You know, really, <laughs> ultimately, I think that's it, it, fundamental to the academic drive. It doesn't make any sense that every school across our nation is not actively yes. engaged in Absolutely. these kinds of activities. And if we can't do it, I mean, we're not for profit. We're there to basically yeah. uh, like educate and you have free labor you, in the form of students. They are, they are so passionate, yeah. quite frankly. I mean, it's really incredible to see that, how yeah. dedicated they are and passionate they are. Um, and they're, I mean, it's from engineering education perspective interesting as well, because they're now getting out of their comfort zone, right? They mm -hmm. have to not just solve equations, but they have to build things, right? Uh, saw things and like uh, glue things together. And not only that, they're doing something, they have to go and take a rejection too. Yeah. Because let me tell you, not everything we designed were perfect spot on, right? Uh, people didn't like some of it. So, I mean, th that's a big part of, I think, engineering education. You have to, I mean, and talking about user-centered design, right? You have to come back and just put like, Okay, you thought you did the best or amazing <laughs> product you came up with, and it sucked. So, yeah. and they <laughs> hated it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it's 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 hard. It's not easy if you're passionate about an idea. But I mean, I think this is great learning experience. So you're pivoting, right? You're realizing that what you thought great is not so great. I mean, any chance that a student is able to do real world work before yes. they go into, you know, because like, I think especially it's a new world. It's the world of the millennial. And, you know, we can talk about entitlement and we can talk about living with your parents until you're 30. And we can talk <laughs> about all the changes to the modern undergraduate student that, that we've come across. But the truth of the matter is like, eventually you have to go there and you make have to it happen and you're going to fail. And you're going to fail hard. And it's and that's how you learn. And that's how you get better. Well, actually, I'm, it's funny. You're saying things that I haven't, I should say, but I am not saying. So this <laughs> happened to the third time now. But failing is mandatory in yeah, this class. So I we have that. a manifesto. Uh, and one of the items is failing is mandatory. So if you don't fail, you're not really... You're playing yeah, it too safe. Exactly. Yeah. You're just You're reiterating not. something that already happened. Yeah. I love that. That's so great. Well, gosh, we've been talking for so long, Burchin, and we've got a little bit left only because I always close my show by asking my guests the same two questions. Oh, and okay. <laughs> I cannot wait because of your perspective to hear, um, to hear your answers. And of course, these are big picture questions. So okay. you ready for that? Mm -hmm. All right. So when you think about the future, which I know you do all the time in your work, mm -hmm. um, and of course, as a mom and, you know, all the other things we've been discussing, in whatever context is relevant to you, however you want to answer the question. The first question is, what is the thing that really does keep you up at night? The thing that you're maybe, hmm. uh, you know, pessimist about, maybe even cynical about, like you're legitimately concerned the future is not looking good. But then on the flip side of that, you know, so we end on a positive note. What are you actually optimistic about? What are you looking forward to? And you're not just paying lip service. You legitimately believe that things are looking up. 
That's a difficult question. I know. They're evil <laughs> That's questions. That's a difficult two-part question. <laughs> I think I have... What keeps me up is basically not getting there as fast and as good as I can get there in mm. terms of this this vision I'm talking about, the interaction and future of buildings. Because I'm not naive, and I said it many times, it's a complex problem. And it's not something that I can address by myself. That's yeah. why I surround myself with uh, brilliant people. And I want to get there. And, uh, you know, that, that, that I, I think maybe my ambitions can be bigger than what could be delivered in, in, in the lifetime. So that failing is mandatory, but I don't like failing. Of course. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really answering your question. You absolutely directly. are. Uh, so I don't like failing. Um, I think everybody feels the way you, you're saying, like, I want to do more than I can yes. than I have the capability to do. And so even though I've done so much, I'm always going to feel like I didn't do enough. Yes. And and it, it, it takes a team of people to do this, right? Mm. I mean, uh, one thing that I would love to do is commercialization of some of these uh, tools or, or approaches or technologies. And it not, it, it can't be just one person. So it needs to be a team of people. So that I think keeps me up. Uh, the, 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 the cloud of failing, even though yeah. failing is mandatory. Um, but I'm optimistic because we've done, we've, we've done a lot. I, I, I feel like, okay, I'm optimistic in the sense that this is the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some of these things I've been talking about. They have been taught about before, right? I mean, it's not like I'm the first person talking about this. But I think technology, in terms of technology maturation, in terms of people's mentalities and expectations, and in terms of uh, socioeconomical forces, I think we're, we're there to make it happen. So that's a great outlook, in my opinion. So it's not like anymore we're talking about ideas that are so futuristic that... Yeah. Maybe will happen, but they're, they're happening as we're talking about some of these things that I've been talking about. We have implemented in buildings. So yeah, the tools the, exist. They're feasible now. Yes. We and have data ready for it. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, if 50 years ago, if I talked about like this interaction between your desk and yourself, people would be looking at me like you're crazy. But now it's, I, tell you you're not rolling your eyes you're like okay i understand it can happen i mean we we live i think we live in an era now where my friends who are just starting to have children their kids will never drive a car i really believe that they'll never have to learn to <laughs> yes. drive because the technology's there it, it's almost there um a lot of it is the will to use it and the, the fear around using it yes. and so as those psychological things change the the actual implementation, you know, the yeah. adoption goes very quickly. But I think on that note, what keeps me up is mm -hmm. also like we have to be very socially responsible when we're innovating yeah. new technology. So with my research, this comes up a lot. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't, you didn't ask, uh -huh. but like <laughs> the big brother or the privacy or, yeah. or security, right? I mean, how much is too much and how all of these things will affect your psychology, I mean, psychology of technology, right? I mean, we really as engineers and scientists have to make very conscious decisions 
because you you're, you're seeing with the, the new technology and how things are changing the society and the pop the new generation, right? Yeah, so, with CRISPR, we just saw gene edited babies in China. I mean, this was a massive ethical yes. outcry. But like you said, this this um this ne- um, negotiation between convenience and privacy, which we're always yes. trying to. And it's funny, maybe it didn't even come up because this newer generation is so entrenched in it that like convenience seems to always win out over privacy. Like people are like, well, yeah, I know my iPhone does everything I'm thinking and saying anyway. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm getting targeted ads every yes. day. Like we people aren't even surprised when they're like find out that there's some microphone in some device that shouldn't have been there or, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I just expect that now so it's definitely a different era yes we do certainly but imagine this 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 intelligent environment cognitive environment you're living in right so if you imagine it as a whole what can go wrong is something i want to also address right what can go wrong and how can i make it not go wrong yeah i mean that's something i think we need to also think about and now we're more aware of what can go wrong with technology i'm not saying it as like a fear of like i don't i'm technophobia or anything no, but, but i mean it needs to be addressed right yeah, I if mean, you don't address it just goes and does whatever it wants to do you want it to go this direction and how do i go to that direction we all saw 2001 a space Odyssey. Yes. <laughs> this is a cautionary <laughs> exactly. tale and there are people out there you know i my mother won't use a debit card online or a credit card well, online my you parents know. are the same <laughs> <laughs> so definitely you know it varies and the people who listen to this podcast really do range in age um because they have that fundamental science interest so you've got the young people who are like yeah yeah i'm used to it whatever the government knows everything yes. and then you've got older people who are like I would not use that desk, you know, yes. and you've got everywhere in between. And I think it's really cool that you're navigating it at so many levels, at the at the technical level, at the data level, at the psychological level, at the sociological level, all these things come into play. And it almost seems too big. It almost seems too much to manage. But somehow, not only are you managing it, you, but you're successfully managing it and you're able to put some of your efforts in addition to that, to helping affect change in the people's lives who have the least among us, who are struggling the most. Yes. And I think that that's such a cool thing uh, that really does bring it together. And um, and I know that people listening, actually, before we go, would love to figure out how they can learn more about this work that you're doing. I know that you're not doing it for profit, right? So if people want to contribute, Absolutely. if there's a way to do it, yes. where can they go to learn more? I think uh, for the research side, uh, mm-hmm. my website, uh, which I can give to you, mm-hmm. and uh, and for the course, uh, we don't have something set up because it's, it's it, the course is a prototype. Yeah, in itself. you're just starting it. But I'm I'm happy to. I mean, if they just email me, if they're interested to know more, or if they want to contribute in some way, uh, or just just to learn more, as I said, I'll I'll be happy to take any questions. Very cool. So we'll share all of that in the show notes, guys. Um, Burchin, thank you so much for being here. This oh, was thank fascinating. You so much. It's, it's great. I love talking about my research because yes. I, it makes me think about it more. <laughs> it's just great. And you're a great host. Oh, you're I mean, so kind. I know. I was a little nervous. My accent, and I'm not prepared, but I mean, you make me really no, you're comfortable. Amazing. You were great. It was such a fun chat. And guys, everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.